Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And happy holiday season, Tracy. Yes, it is after Thanksgiving, so I feel okay about saying that. At least it will be when this episode comes out. It's the last thing we're recording before we actually have that holiday. Yeah, I don't, I don't. We've talked about this, I think when, back when we were doing pop stuff, I mentioned I have no uh, calendar issues with people saying happy holiday greetings in July because I grew up going to craft stores where the holidays are always happening. Oh, sure, sure. So I don't, I don't have any concerns. And I, my house is literally Halloween 365 days a year. So uh, to me, the holidays are a very fluid concept, <laughs> but we are officially in December, which is when most people would get into the holiday spirit. And back in 2015 and 2016, we did a series of three holiday episodes, two in 2015, one in 2016, that we called the Krampus and Friends Holiday Special. Uh, and we've missed them. So this year we are bringing it back for a part four. Just for expectations management for any listeners who were not listening back then and maybe haven't heard those episodes, this episode does not feature Krampus. Krampus kicked off the whole thing for us, and that's why we call it Krampus and Friends. Uh, so we covered him in part one. You can go back and listen to that or to all three if you really want to travel the world of holiday traditions. But today, we are going to have a mix of Scandinavian and Japanese traditions as we cover the Nissa, the Yule Goat, and the Seven Lucky Gods. So, Scandinavian folklore features a familiar-looking little fellow who goes by a slightly different name, depending on what country you're in. In Norway, he's known as Nissa. In Sweden, he's Tomta. And he's Tomtu in Finland. They are pretty consistent, these depictions, and how they're characterized across those various countries. The names are just a little different. And the word Nisa is said to be a derivation of the name Nils, Nicholas, essentially. And Tomta shares a root with the Swedish word Tomt, which is a land parcel or a homestead. And the Tomta or Nisa is a solitary creature. It turns both helpful and mischievous, and you will see why it's tied to the concept of homes and homesteading. Nissen are protective entities that help families, and they particularly help with the farm homes to care for the livestock and the land. There's a particularly strong affinity on the part of Nissa for horses, and he'll be sure to take extra special care of horses, sometimes even braiding their manes and tails to keep them looking their best. They're also considered generally pretty lucky if a Nissa settles on your land. He's said to attract good fortune and to drive away evil. And a Nissa is a diminutive sprite. He tops out at about three feet. That's about a meter tall. And he dresses in simple farmer's garb of a tunic, fitted pants, and boots, plus a cap on his head. And he's sometimes depicted as a little bit raggedy. Usually his cap is red, but some depictions show the Nissa with variations in colors, although they're generally bright shades, and red is almost always the color of at least one of his garments. And if you give a Nissa new clothes, that Nissa might feel too fancy to do any work, so definitely don't do that. As I was looking for artwork to go with this episode, the depictions of Nissa reminded me of gnomes a little bit. They're very much, there's a, a reason that they have been appropriated into garden sculpture because everyone wants one of these. Mm -hmm. If you have a Nissa, you have good fortune in a tidy home. So, yeah. <laughs> so the face of the Nissa is that of an elderly man with a full beard full of white hair, although in some places like Denmark, they might have clean-shaven chins. 
Where did the Nyssa come from? That is a little unclear, although some versions of the folklore suggest that a Nyssa is the spirit of the enterprising farmer who originally cleared and settled the land where he lives, and that he remains on that land to protect the generations of farmers that follow and ensure that his work is not undone. But people who live in cities might also have a Tompton or a Nyssa. And in these cases, they just hunker down under the floorboards during the warmer months and then come out as the winter holidays approach. Uh, Yeah, they come out at night, they do some chores, they take good care of you. Uh, And in exchange for all of this kind help, the family has its own side of the bargain to hold up. It has to take care of the Nyssa and show their appreciation by leaving him a buttery bowl of porridge to eat on occasion. And in recent times, this offering has come to be a Christmas Eve tradition specifically. And you should absolutely not look for the Nyssa because they do not like to be seen and they will turn invisible to avoid it. So also... Don't mess with the Nyssa. If you don't fulfill your duties with the porridge provisions or if you behave in a way that he doesn't like, including trying to see him or undoing the braids that he's left in your horse's hair, you might incur his wrath. And while you might delight in the Nyssa doing chores, don't ever interrupt him while he's carrying these duties out Uh, Because if Anissa is angered, he might bite, and there is venom in that bite that can only be tempered with a magical antidote. Yes, adorable and poisonous. (laughs) Uh, The best of holiday things. You also want to make sure that you do your part in keeping an orderly home, uh, because that is what Nissa like. And if you spill anything, you have to give a yell to your Nissa and let him know so that he doesn't slip. See above Re getting angry. <laughs> and uh, an irritated Nissa might hide your things or enact a bit of trickery in order to get revenge. But there are some even scarier stories of Nissen that tell tales of them injuring livestock or, in some cases, even killing animals if the farmer they belong to has acted poorly. One such instance of Anissa being particularly cruel is from a legend about a servant girl purposely trying to fool the household Nissa. She hid the butter in his Christmas porridge down at the bottom of the bowl instead of putting it on top. And thinking that he had been stiffed on his butter, the Nissa killed the family's cow, but then went ahead and ate the porridge. And then realizing that he had been served the butter just down at the bottom of the bowl, he stole a cow from a neighbor to replace the one he had killed. So... Kind of a mixed bag, behavior-wise. <laughs> uh, your Nissa is great, but your neighbor's Nissa, you don't want any part <laughs> Yeah, this is also kind of a two wrongs don't make a right situation. <laughs> right, and this ties into some stories you'll occasionally hear about Scandinavia during Christianization and how that impacted the Nissa story. The Nissa started to be viewed uh, in some ways as negatively and started to be associated by some extremists as a servant or an associate of the devil. So welcoming Anissa during this time when they were viewed with all this suspicion was considered to be playing a very dangerous game with the fate of your soul. And in this transition in some areas where they were viewed this way, success started to be targeted as having some sort of sinister aspect to it because Anissa must be involved and that meant that you were consorting with something that can sorted with evil. And this also ties into that lore we just talked about, that Anissa might steal from one farmstead to benefit the farmer that he lived with. The Anissa has evolved over time. It was in the middle of the 19th century that these sprites came to be linked to Christmas. And in some areas, a different entity branched off of the Anissa legend known as the Yule Anissa, which is closer to a Santa Claus entity. Yeah, there are, as there are with Anissa, where you'll see them as... Tomta or Tomtu, uh, 
you can see Yulinissa and their other uh, sort of Yule root uh, names in different countries. But still, this idea of this gnome-like home sprite persisted in Scandinavia. And in 1881, Swedish novelist Victor Radeberg wrote the poem Tomten, which became very popular, and it also cemented the idea of Tomten or Nissen as farm spirits in modern folklore. That has also been adapted a number of times. You can find modern uh, storybook versions of it, which are really, really sweet. And this also added to the lore of Tomten and Nissen by characterizing these helpful spirits as being philosophically thought about the people that they watch over. Here's the translation of one of the stanzas. So he has seen them, sire and son, year by year in that room there, sleep first as children, every one. But whence did they come there? This generation to that was heir, blossomed, grew old, and was gone. But where? That is the hopeless, burning riddle ever returning. This poem also established the Tomta as a nocturnal creature who watches over things while the humans rest, and it concludes with the lines, Now sinks the moon in night profound, snow on the firs and pines around, snow on the roofs is gleaming, all but the goblin are dreaming. Coming up, we're going to talk about goats and fire, but first we will take a quick break for a sponsor break. People that are raised in the U.S. probably think that Yule is just a synonym for Christmas. I did for quite a long time. But originally, Yule was, of course, a multi-day pagan winter solstice festival. As Christianity spread throughout Europe, this celebration slowly transitioned to the Nativity Feast and became associated with Christmas rather than its origin point. And a goat has played various roles in seasonal celebrations going back to Yule, although the precise origins of the goat's presence are unclear. There are a lot of different associations with goats in Scandinavian legend, and that could be part of the origin of goats as a symbolic part of winter holidays. For example, Thor's chariot is said to have been pulled by two goats in Norse mythology. And as Father Christmas was adopted into winter celebrations, in some Scandinavian traditions, he rides a goat. Going back to the 1600s, there was a tradition in Danish farming villages for one of the young men in the area to dress as a goat during Yule, complete with a goat skull on his head, and go door-to-door, essentially bursting into people's houses and creating sort of a fun havoc. This havoc generally included throwing around some insults and gently overturning some furniture, maybe, but (laughs) the goat could be placated with beer and snacks and then sated he would move on to the next house to do some carousing there. A less raucous and more benevolent version of this tradition involved the village goats stopping by Yule parties and doling out gifts to good children. Goats made out of straw or other natural materials became holiday decor over time, sometimes with an accompanying story that the goat was keeping an eye on things and making sure holiday preparation was being handled properly. Eventually, they became available in all sizes, from ornaments to massive centerpieces large enough to decorate town squares. Yeah, some people uh, still like to play the game where you hide a Yule, a small Yule goat in your neighbor's house. The idea is like you're being watched and then it's your job to then pass that goat on to someone else, uh, which is sort of fun. Uh, But speaking of that massive scale that Tracy just mentioned, that is what has made the Yule goat 
his, his most famous in the last half century. In 1966, the town of Javle, Sweden, erected a giant goat in its castle square, and that's something that the town has done every year since, starting with the first Sunday of Advent. And that practice has taken on its own story, in part because of an unofficial offshoot practice that some citizens of the town have adopted, of setting the goat on fire. That first year, the Javle goat was installed on December 1st, and at the stroke of midnight, as the new year arrived, it went up in flames. The goat arsonist was identified and charged with vandalism. For a couple of years, the Yule goat went up and lasted through the entire holiday season, but on New Year's Eve of 1969, the goat was once again set on fire, although that time the perpetrator was not identified. The goat erected in 1970 only lasted six hours. A new goat for the 1970 season was quickly built and put into its place in Castle Square. And the rest of the 1970s were frankly rough on the goat. According to the Yavla tourism site, over that decade, it imploded one year. It was smashed to bits on several occasions. It was rammed with a car, and it suffered several unknown fates. It also burned again, once in 1974 and again in 1979, when it went up in flames before it was even put up. A second 1979 goat, also destroyed. Throughout the 1980s, the goat had a similarly precarious life. Even when it was saturated with fire-retardant materials, arsonists still managed to burn it down. In 1989, the raw materials for the goat were set on fire before it was even assembled. The 1980s did see the Yavla Yule goat make it into the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest straw goat in the world. Another development in the 1980s was the construction of two goats each year. That started in 1986. Yeah, when the goat tradition started in 1966, it was originally the work of the city's tradesmen. But after those first few years of their work being destroyed, they just didn't want to do it any longer. I cannot blame them. So in 1971, the Natural Science Society of Vazaskolen took over the annual building of the goat. But then in 1986, the tradesmen of Yavla once again started constructing giant yule goats. And at that point, a, a rivalry between the two goat building groups began. In 1992, both of the goats were set on fire eight days after they were set up. The tradesman's goat was rebuilt only to be burned again. The same arsonist was found to have set all three fires and was arrested. Another interesting thing started happening in the 1990s, and that's that some of the citizens of Yavla started setting up guard details for the goats to try to deter these would-be arsonists and pranksters. The 2000s and the 20-teens have seen a mixed bag of fires and survival for the Yule Goat. In 2005, the Yule Goat was besieged by flaming arrows, which were shot by attackers that were dressed as gingerbread men and Father Christmas. In 2010, would-be kidnappers tried to bribe the man who was guarding the Yule Goat into looking the other way while they attempted to airlift it with a helicopter. That guard could not be bought, thankfully. Uh, in 2015, the goat actually went on a little trip. It traveled to China, where he was visited by more than 400,000 people during his time on display there. The Yavla Yule Goat has become something of a celebrity and now has a webcam, which has been hacked by saboteurs at least once. It also has a Twitter presence and an Instagram account and a dedicated spokesperson so you can keep tabs on how he's doing. While it is a constant battle to keep this giant goat safe, it's also become a significant tourist draw and an economic driver for Yavla, so it's unlikely that they will end this tradition anytime soon. 
Yeah, I, I have seen multiple things online, like in discussion or comments on articles, where people are like, why do they keep doing this? It seems expensive and like a pain in the neck because it gets burnt so often. And it's like, if you look at Yavla's main like city website, a lot of it is about tourism related to the goat. So I don't think they want to give that up. Also, it's beautiful. Uh, and the goat has gotten bigger and bigger over the years. His height at this point is 13 meters. That's about 42.6 feet. He weighs 3.6 tons. It takes an estimated 1,000 man hours and an entire truckload of straw to build the goat with the straw affixed to a metal frame base. In 2017 and 2018, the goat made it all the way through the holiday season intact. Here's to hoping in 2019 this will also be true. Hopefully, as of when this episode comes out, the goat has not already been (laughs) set up and burned down. I'm not sure what the schedule is. Right. Uh, I hope not because, you know, as we said, there's uh, there are our webcams and people protecting them now. <laughs> and it, it's apparently worked for a couple years. But you never know when a gingerbread man with a flaming arrow might show up. There's also one story of an American tourist who set him on fire once, which is embarrassing and horrifying. Uh, we are going to switch away uh, from European traditions and kind of make our way to the next set of holiday characters in another part of the world. But before we do that, we're going to pause for a word from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History Class going. We are moving now to a slightly later point on the yearly calendar and across the globe to Japan. And we're going to talk about the seven lucky gods that are associated with the new year. These Shichifukujin are a mix of deities and one historical figure who travel together in a treasure ship from heaven into the human world and offer good fortune for the new year. And according to tradition, you should place a picture of these seven lucky gods under your pillow on New Year's Eve to ensure that they bring you good fortune in the year ahead. The first mention of these deities and their grouping of seven together is in 1420, when a procession of the seven lucky gods was staged. The first two gods of this group that became popular were Ibisu and Daikoku, and that's because the two of them are linked to business prosperity. Since merchants are believed to have been the first to adopt the seven lucky gods, that makes sense. From there, the other gods were adopted by other groups of people who wanted some representation of luck that correlated to their work. According to one legend, these gods were selected at the behest of the shogun Yamitsu Tokugawa in the 1600s to correlate to the seven godlike virtues that were laid out by the Buddhist priest Tenkei. Those virtues were fortune, longevity, honesty, amiability, popularity, fortune, and dignity. Ibisu is tied to the fishing and food industries as well as the virtue of honesty. You'll often see images or sculptures of him holding a fishing rod in his right hand and a fish in his left, although sometimes it's also a fan. These accessories form a contrast against his clothing, which is usually represented as brocaded court wear, while the things he's holding are more rustic. Ibisu is unique in that he is the only member of the seven lucky gods that is native to Japan, originating in the Shinto religion. All of the others came from India's Hindu belief system or China's Taoist Buddhist traditions. The Ibisu Ko Festival is held every November. It's named for this deity, and in the modern era, it's an event where merchants pray for prosperity and good dealings. One origin story for the festival, though, suggests that it was intended as a time when merchants sold their wares at discounted prices as a way to appease the god of fair deals for their profitable transactions throughout the rest of the year. 
Daikokuten, or Daikoku, has roots in India's belief system and was introduced in Japan in the 9th century. Daikoku is based on Mahakala, a manifestation of Shiva, and in the Japanese pantheon, he's a god of prosperity and wealth. And he represents the virtue of fortune and is normally depicted standing on a bale, or sometimes two bales, of rice, holding a magic mallet, which can produce money when it strikes an object. And he sometimes also carries a bag that is filled with money as well. And Daikoku is sometimes named as Abisu's father, although there is not consensus on the matter of Abisu's parentage. Other people believe that he came from a different uh, set of circumstances. Bisha Mountain appears in armor, which often leads to him being described as the god of warriors. But really, he's just defending against evil and darkness, not a representative of war or aggression. His virtue is dignity, and he's usually depicted as carrying some sort of a weapon, normally a spear or a sword, as well as a pagoda representing faith. He's sometimes posed atop two vanquished demons. Bisha Mountain hails from India and is also revered by doctors, police, and soldiers. Fukurokuju is a Chinese scholar and is the god of happiness and wealth, and the virtue that he represents is longevity. Fukurokuju, who originated in the Taoist Buddhist tradition, is said to be able to revive the dead. That is a a power that only he has among the seven lucky gods. And true to his scholarly ways, he keeps a scroll tied to his walking stick. And he's a short man, but he has a large head. He's often accompanied by a sacred creature that also represents longevity, such as a tortoise, a snake, a stork, or a white deer. Jurojin has the visage of an old man, which aligns with the wisdom that's his virtue and which he bestows on those who pray to him. He's sometimes confused with Fukurokuju, since both of them are depicted as elderly and being accompanied by deer. But Fukurokuju's deer companion is white, and Jurojin's uh, companion is black, indicating that it's older and wiser. Jurojin also has a little vice in that he loves to drink, and he'll bestow some of his wisdom on people who offer him wine. Uh, I, I like that aspect of him. I think it's cute. charming. <laughs> there is only one woman among the seven lucky gods, and she is Benton, goddess of art and knowledge. She's associated with the virtue of amiability. In modern writings, you will often see her virtue listed as joy. Benton wears flowing robes and plays an instrument, usually a flute or the lute like biwa. And Benton can be jealous, but she is also compassionate. Musicians in particular have historically been very devoted to Benton with stories of some refusing to marry so that she will not become jealous and take away their talent. Hotea is the only one of the seven lucky gods that's said to be based on an actual person, and that's the Chinese monk Budai. This is the rounded, smiling Buddha that you've probably seen depicted in any number of places. It's a jolly character who represents popularity and magnanimity. He's the god of both happiness and abundance. He carries a bag of fortune, which is said to contain all the things that are needed by man. One of the lessons of his is that abundance comes from simply being happy with what you have. And we mentioned at the beginning of this section that if you want the seven lucky gods to grace you, you should put their picture under your pillow. But that is not the end of it. The first week of the new year, uh, there is a tradition where families travel to the temples of each of the deities. That's a practice that dates back to the Edo period. And it becomes something of a pilgrimage as the shrine for each of the seven lucky gods has to be visited to ensure that all kinds of luck is yours in the new year. So... Here's to hoping that all of our listeners have beautiful holidays, no matter what you're celebrating, and that 2020 comes with some good fortune for all of us. Yes, I hope, I hope. Um, 
for listener mail, I have nothing to do with luck. Okay. <laughs> but instead, a fun story about traffic lights. Um, this comes from our listener, Father Daniel. He writes, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I have enjoyed your podcast for a few years now, and a couple of recent episodes touched indirectly on some New York State history, which I think you might find interesting. There is a traffic light in Syracuse, New York, on Tipperary Hill, which is upside down, with the green on top and the red on bottom. And I put upside down in quotes, because historically, the Irish locals had seen the regular arrangement of the signal, red above green, as a statement about the supremacy of England, red over Ireland, green. Since its installation in 1925, the signal was regularly vandalized. Rocks were thrown at it to bust the lights, and while it was continually repaired, they needed a more permanent solution. Apparently, a local alderman named John Huckle Ryan was the one who suggested putting the green on top and the red on the bottom, which resulted in 1928 in the arrangement of the only upside-right traffic signal in the world. For colorblind people, there is a sign warning that the light is inverted, but unfortunately, in order to understand the sign, you would also have to not be colorblind. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, and to commemorate this history of vandalism and civil disobedience, there is a charming bronze statue at the intersection of an older man teaching a few young boys to throw rocks at the light. Uh, that is a fascinating story. He said, secondly, I would like to thank you for the episode about the Black Sox scandal. To commemorate the 100th anniversary, not so much of the scandal, but of Honest Eddie's honesty, Honest Eddie Murphy's hometown of Hancock, New York, placed a bronze statue of him in the town square the weekend before last. And his grandson, Ed, and other family were present for this dedication. I have attached a photo of the front page of the Hancock Herald, which covered the event. Uh, Father Daniel, thank you so much for those two tidbits. I, um... <laughs> I uh, am kind of bemused by the idea of uh, busting a traffic light as something to be commemorated with a statue. But, uh, you know, every historical moment has its has its place in the bigger story. Uh, so thank you so much for writing us. If you would like to do that, you can do so at our email, which is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Again, that is new. Uh, we used to be at a different address, so switch it over to the new one if we're in your address book. And you can also find us everywhere on social media. That remains the same at Missed in History. That is also our website, MissedInHistory.com. You can check us out as subscribers. We love subscribers. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.